living is living life uh, according to the promptings of the Holy Spirit that are in our heart in the same way that the pillar of fire led the Hebrew community through the wilderness at night with the pillar of cloud as well during the day. That the same Holy Spirit that was present in believers like David and all through the New Testament, all the Christ followers, lives in us. That that Spirit will always synchronize with God's Word. And now that we have the full Word of God, we have tremendous capacity to sense how the Holy Spirit is leading us. Last week I talked about how the Spirit clearly led Paul to the where, to the when, and when I mentioned Luke and Timothy, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, led the Apostle Paul to the who. They became part of his team, as well as that church in Philippi. Today, I want to talk to you about the what. What the Holy Spirit leads us towards. And today's message is going to be a little, a little deeper than normal. I hope that you enjoy it. And I think what you're going to discover is, what I've discovered is that the Holy Spirit leads us in a pathway that is so much like our rabbi, Jesus. The question I want to answer this morning is, what does the Spirit of Jesus' path look like? I want to talk about the what this morning. In his book, Humilitas, Pastor John Dixon illustrates the beauty of humility in the life of Sir Edmund Hillary. You may know that name. In 1953, Hillary conquered Mount Everest with his Sherpa, friend and guide, Tenzin Norgay. In 1985, he was knighted. He was made the highest commissioner to India, Nepal, and Bangladesh, which meant he was traveling routinely to those nations, Nepal, uh, India, and Bangladesh. I've actually been f- within a couple hundred miles of Nepal. It's a very, very rural area. He was traveling there he, as, a, as having received British's uh, highest award, also the Order of uh, Gator, which was a membership limited to just 24 individuals. Sir Edmund Hillary was one of the most esteemed men on the planet. He died just a few years ago. On one of his many trips back to the Himalayas, he was spotted by a group of tourist climbers. They begged for a photo with a great man, and Hillary obliged. They handed him an ice pick so he would look the part and set up for the photograph. Just then, another climber passed the group, and not recognizing the knight, Sir Edmund Hillary, strode up to Hillary saying, Excuse me, sir, that's not how you hold an ice pick. Let me show you. Everyone stood around in amazed silence as Hillary thanked the man. Let him adjust the pick and happily went on with the photograph. It doesn't matter how experienced that other climber was. His greatness was diminished by his intrusive presumption. We are repelled by pride. Edmund Hillary's greatness, however, is somehow enhanced by his humility. Now, in the first century, when a young man was invited to follow a rabbi, which was a tremendous invitation, it it helps us understand why the Apostle John and James, Peter, 
Andrew, that when they were given the invitation to follow Jesus, they just immediately left everything they had to follow him. It was a, such an honor. It would be like making, you know, first round of the NFL draft uh, uh, or getting selected to play in the NBA. Tremendous opportunity. When someone was given that invitation, there was a saying. The understanding was that you're following a rabbi. He's a uh, teacher that walks everywhere. His, his ministry is a walking ministry. And so as you're following your rabbi, everything that got on his feet would possibly get on your clothes. All the dust that he, uh, that he brushed up would potentially come on you. Everything that your rabbi did, you would experience somehow. And the saying was, once you made the decision to go follow your rabbi, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. What I want to suggest this morning is that spirit-led living, the what of the Spirit of Christ, of the Holy Spirit that's leading me, the spirit-led living will cover you in the dust of your rabbi. Now let's look at his dust. It's in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read a chapter that includes in it a hymn, six stanzas, considered the oldest piece of scripture in the whole New Testament. It was potentially circulated among the churches as early as 35 AD, just a couple years after the resurrection of Jesus. This piece that I'm going to, that's a part of my reading today, was uh, preceded the letter to the Philippian church by some 20 years. The early church was very dependent upon the Spirit as the writing of the New Testament was Uh, was not circulated entirely. A region, as I mentioned last week, might only have, um, a region like Sacramento and the Bay Area might only have a few copies of just one letter, like the letter to the Philippians. If we're going to be covered in in the dust of our rabbi, if we're going to understand the what, what it means, what I can expect about following Jesus, it's in Philippians 2. Here it is. You ready? This is the life that we're called to. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, I'm in verse 1. If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness of compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in Him, rather, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Verse 4, each of you should not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who being in the very nature God, this is the beginning of this hymn that I was referring to. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
to the glory of God the Father. Verse 12, therefore, my friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Verse 14, here's some more humiliation dust. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a pastor cannot read the word, in a crooked, thank you, and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Folks, the first observation I have about the dust of your rabbi that I pray you're covered with is your rabbi's dust is humble. It's humility. Humility. In, in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, as well as Great by Choice, some of the leading research on leadership, they identify this as one of the two most influential, the most important qualities in any person. Not just a leader, in any person. It's humility. The other is discipline. Humility, per John Dixon, is the noble choice to forego your status and use your influence for good For the good of others before yourself, to hold your power in service of others. Some of the greatest leaders in history, the most influential, the most inspiring, have been people marked by this humility, the ability to hold power for the good of others, John Dickinson. Now, interestingly, it hasn't always been this way. In ancient Greece and Roman history, humility implied servitude, like taking out the trash in your home. Humility before an equal or lesser was regarded as ill-informed or morally suspect. In fact, the word, the word of the Greco-Roman culture wasn't humilitas. It was phileo timea. It was phileo timia. It was the love of honor. Does that sound like a, another culture? Does that not sound like a culture we're all more familiar with? The moral, the highest moral, was the love of honor. In particular, the male part of the world was tasked with obtaining, maintaining, and sustaining honor of his family and their family. Now, interestingly, the Australian-based Macquarie Research Institute in their ancient history department, made an observation about the the change of the value of humility from the Greco-Roman world. This is their observation. It is from a secular, that is a non-Christian institute. They said that humility, there was a humility revolution that took place in the middle of the first century. Why? They did the research. Was it Was it because of the teaching of this Jesus of Nazareth? They said that his teaching was very influential. Jesus said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must be the servant of all. He who is great among you must serve. 
He taught on humility. But they reasoned that it wasn't his teaching that changed and created a revolution of what value humility had. They said it was the cross. Secular institution. This is their reasoning. Crucifixion in antiquity was the lowest place in the Roman world. Does Jesus' crucifixion mean he is not as great as we thought? That's what they wondered. But they said, or does it mean we need to redefine greatness to fit a cross in it? Did you hear that? Crucifixion in antiquity was the lowest place in the Roman world. Does Jesus' crucifixion mean he's not as great as we thought, or does it mean we need to redefine greatness to fit a cross in it? The reasoning continued. If the greatest man we have ever known willingly sacrificed his life on a cross, the innocent for the guilty, then greatness must consist in willing sacrifice, in holding power for the good of others. Macquarie University Research. Today we're talking about the what? What does the pathway look like that Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, is leading me on? Let me just suggest it is a pathway of humility. It's not a pathway that you won't enjoy, but there'll be seasons where you're having to eat, as we say, humble pie. Not as good as apple, pecan, or Kentucky Derby. It's just humble pie. Look at all these verses on humility in verses 1 through 16. If you have your Bible open, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Verse 3, in humility, consider others better than yourself. Verse 4, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 7, who made himself nothing. Verse 8, who humbled himself. Verse 9, who became obedient to death. This Him, this six stanza him, was what the early church had as one of the very first pieces of Scripture in the first century. If you haven't, and you're disturbed by what's happening globally in the Middle East, the persecution of Christians and awful crime, I challenge you to read John Fox's Book of Martyrs. And look at all of the martyrdom that Christians experienced in the first century, the second century. And you'll see that this pathway of humility can be a pathway of not just dying spiritually. It can be a pathway of submission to Christ, even giving up your own life as he did. It's a tough pathway. Now, let's talk about this hymn just for a moment. Going to go deep, a little deeper here. This hymn in verses 6 through 11, a few observations about it. It's the earliest church hymn. It is considered something that was sung. It is as early as AD 35. There are six stanzas, some argue seven. There's a lot of different positions on this hymn as to whether or not it was Here's a few words I'll throw out. Whether or not it was referring to the nature of Christ, if it was just Christological, whether or not it was a reference to the salvation of Christ, uh, soteriological. Here's how about this. This is, I think it's just practical. And the practicality of this, of this hymn is that it teaches me that this is the pathway 
that I'm to follow. It's a pathway of humility. And as a church that wants to be spirit-led, I can speak on behalf of our elders. Adventure wants to be a church that is led by the Holy Spirit. We, we, we know that early Christians had to be dependent upon the Spirit and, and or word of mouth of what Jesus taught. They did not have the Scriptures. And yet we know that the, scripture is, the Scriptures are always in sync with the Holy Spirit. And we know that we have the Word of God. And so I can tell you at Adventure that we have a tremendous opportunity to be led by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. Because we have the Word and we have God's Spirit, that pillar of fire, that pillar of light in us. We have access to go back to the Old Testament. We have access to the Urim and Thummim that the high priest would place his hand over to get the Lord's leading. We have access to the Holy of Holies to get the Lord's leading. Tons of access. And yet we're faced with a challenge, and that challenge is that we're not hungry for the Word. We live in a culture with so many options, so many choices, that getting into the Word is not nearly as entertaining or, or exciting as a episode, another episode on Netflix. And so we're faced with that dilemma in our own country. And so we're, we want to be a church that the Holy Spirit's leading, especially in Natomas, when we are... We are enjoying the presence of 17 other languages in our own area, just a few miles north of the capital. And we see the next generation of adventurers led by the Spirit, known for their love for one another, their neighbors, the Natomas community, the city of Sacramento. Can you see yourself as an ambassador that the Holy Spirit sent to Natomas to bring Jesus' hope to this imperfect world? I think you do. Well, the Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus is going to cover you in the dust of humility. But that's not all. The Spirit of Jesus also has another look, and it is illustrated by this missionary I've been studying in preparation for our Easter series. I've been reading this book, Heavenly Man, as well as Nick Ripkin's The Insanity of God, which talks about missions and what's happening in some of the developing world nations. And Brother Yen shares this example of how obedience cost him seven years of prison. Let me say that again. Brother Yen talks about how it's not obedience, it was disobedience cost him seven years of prison that was reduced to 18 months because he felt like he, he's, the Lord told him, you're going to be released, and he was released. He and his wife are fleeing China. That's the context here. He and his wife, Deling, are fleeing China. They, they're being pursued by Chinese governing authorities because of his evangelism. And he writes that two nights before they were to leave Myanmar, he says, I received a vivid dream from the Lord. I saw my family leaving Myanmar. He says, his son Isaac went on ahead. Isaac was very nervous as he crossed the border, yet passed through customs and left the, court, the country safely. Next in the dream, it was, he says, my turn to pass through customs. The official asked me for my passport and told me to open my bags. He found my Burmese identity card and ordered me into an interrogation room. In the dream, 
I saw the face of the customs official and also noticed the interrogation room was very poor and run down. After waking up from my dream, I shared it with my wife. And he says, whom I thank God for giving an honest and wise heart warned me. You shouldn't be so positive about your escape from this country. God has warned you and you must heed it. Make sure you leave your ID card with me. If you take it, you will surely find trouble. That was not a dream. She told him that. And he says, I rejected my wife's advice. Fellas, let's just raise our hand. How many of us have done that? I rejected my wife's advice. I ignored the dream. The previous few months had been hectic, a hectic time of ministry. He had just gotten done talking to some college students about his ministry. They said, you're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. His wife said, you're not going to be fine. I'd traveled to many nations and spoken in hundreds of meetings. My mother had recently died, and I was still dealing with the grief and pain of her departure. I was burned out and needed time of rest and refreshing. It was Sherwood Carthen that told our men just a couple years ago this September that when you are tired, you are vulnerable to making bad mistakes. Also, when you're hurt, when you're angry, or you're lonely. Brother Yun says, in my sorry state, I had great confidence in my own strength and abilities. Ooh, ooh. The Lord needed to teach me a lesson and humble me. He taught me that if, I, if we trust in any kind of resource except him, we will fail. I had placed too much trust in my German passport. Deep down in my heart, I somehow believed that my passport would protect me from harm and help me overcome problems the next morning. I entered the customs hall at Yangon, Rangoon International Airport, before boarding my flight to Thailand. Immediately, I started to feel uneasy. The scene before me was exactly the same as in my dream. The very same officer in my dream looked at my passport and told me to open my bags. He saw the Burmese ID card that my wife told me to leave with her. And, uh, and immediately his countenance grew serious. He took me into a side room and ordered me to wait. Straight away, I realized I was in the same rundown interrogation room that the Lord had shown me in a dream the night before. The judge reviewed my case. This was several months later. They don't provide immediate decisions. The judge reviewed my case. Then without emotion, he simply stated seven years of prison. Instead of being reunited with his family and experiencing this great dream because he wouldn't listen to the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't listen to the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't listen to the confirmation of the Holy Spirit from his wife. He went to prison and his greatest dream was compromised because of his disobedience. Folks, the Old Testament teaches us that to obey is better than sacrifice. To be obedient to the Lord, I would say it in New Testament terms, is better than practicing religion. To obey. To follow. Look at all of the words here. Let me begin by saying, the rabbi, your rabbi's dust is obedient. Your rabbi's dust is obedient. 
Verse 8 says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And let's remember, that was a difficult decision for him. He asked his father, please remove it from me. You know you're being asked to obey when, and to humble yourself when you're saying, Lord, I would rather not do this. And in Jesus' words, Father, if at all possible, remove this cup from me. Let me just say, as your friend and pastor, Almighty God will place decisions of obedience before you that you do not want to submit to. It is not unusual that are tough decisions, but you, you submit to him because you want to follow your rabbi. I'm going to skip down here a little bit. If you look in verse 12, look at all of the indications of obedience Obedience is the other bookend here of humility. It begins with humility. It ends with obedience. In verse 12, Paul says, As you've always obeyed, how much more in my absence will you obey? It's, 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 it's like that old saying, integrity is who you are when no one's looking. Paul wants obedience even when he's not around. And then in verse 13, we're, we're exhorted to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Boy, I tell you, that passage is understood as the tension that is going on with us to either cave into our own feelings and our own desires, maybe to separate ourselves, or to submit to the Lord and obey him. That constant conflict between the flesh and the spirit he's speaking to. Folks, and he ends with this. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing. I should say that again for me. Do everything without complaining or arguing. I can be a complainer sometimes. Finally, rejoice with me. Love how this ends. Rejoice with me, he says. Paul says, rejoice with me. Keep in mind, Paul's in prison. He's not enjoying Bella Brew breakfast or IHOP. And he says, rejoice with me. There's nothing I enjoy more than denying what the flesh wants to do and submitting myself to the dust of my rabbi in obedience when I know he's asking me to obey. There's always a reward there. It gets better. There's something that he's got there for me that is so meaningful. This morning, let me ask you, how's the Spirit leading or prompting you to humble yourself these days? This morning, let me ask you, how's the Lord prompting you to obey? How's the Spirit prompting you to obey? Because if you're going to follow the Spirit of Jesus, if you're going to live a Spirit-led life, your rabbi's dust is humble. Your rabbi's dust is obedient. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi this morning. And if you're here and you're, we've been talking about the Spirit and you're uncertain, do, do I have the Holy Spirit? Let me tell you how you know you have the Holy Spirit. If you've made a decision to believe in Jesus Christ that God's Son died on that cross for your sins, was resurrected from the dead, you believe in Him, the Bible says the same Spirit that powerfully raised him from the dead lives in you do you believe that this morning church amen he's in us i would ask you if you want more of the holy spirit 
to do what Jesus said. Luke chapter 11, verse 13, he said, how many of you, if you will ask the Father for the Spirit, will he not give you more? Ask for more. Maybe that's your prayer this morning. Maybe your prayer is, Lord, give me more of your Spirit. Fill me. I need strength. I need your grace. Thirdly, maybe you're not experiencing the Holy Spirit at the level possible because you've become too familiar with habitual sin. Too familiar. And it was great. Last weekend, folks came up and let me pray for them. Some confess sin that they're struggling with. But if there's a sin in your life that you say is not a habit, but you're doing it once a week, it probably is a habit. You cannot not do it. And I talked about several sins last week. I talked about the sin of greed, the insatiable desire for more, overspending, discontentment. I talked last week about the other sin of, in our, I think, our context, which is any sort of addiction. And then I also mentioned sexual immorality, any, any intimacy that's happening out, off of the married bed between a man and a woman can be, a, can be something that will choke or deafen your ears to the Holy Spirit. So if you, if you need help with an area in your life, I challenge you this morning to write on your prayer card. You check off the box confidential. I need help. I got a chance to call some folks last week. It was a tremendous honor. Lastly, maybe you're not enjoying the full power of the Holy Spirit because you haven't followed the early church that when they believed in Jesus, immediately they were baptized. You haven't done that yet. Maybe you had your parents dedicated you as a child. You haven't owned your own decision. That's what I ask. Maybe today you own your own decision and you're baptized into Christ. I don't know where you're at. Our baptisms are coming up. On March the 29th, we have a class on the 22nd. If you're interested, boy, just in going to the class, let us know on your welcome card. I told you earlier yesterday that I uh, got a chance to work with some college students to move our office. We'll tell you more about that this month, a new milestone for adventure to have a very accessible office next to Safe Credit Union right here south of Park Plaza, accessible throughout the week. But we had to get up in the morning. I had to get the trailer. 6.45, Saturday morning. Oof. I'm not real good with my hands. I had to try to get that thing in.